ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we are going to talk about one of my favorite topics today, and that is tenacity. It's one of those things that uh, we absolutely cannot live without, particularly as an entrepreneur, but even if you are a corporate executive listening to us today. And the book we're going to be talking about is called Texas Tenacity. And it was written by Susan Combs. And Susan, I am so happy to have you on the show today. Well, thank you so much, Chicky. I'm delighted to be on. Well, you don't sound like you're from Texas. I went off east for a long time. <laughs> ah. so it comes, well, it, it happens comes to the and best goes. of us. I'm sorry, what? I said it happens to the best of us. I was in Texas for 10 years and, and never never picked up anything uh, southern in my speech. And uh, actually, I live in Florida, which is the southernmost part of the United States, but nobody here has a southern accent. Well, uh, I had mine kind of beaten out of me uh, off east, and then I came back, and you know, sometimes it gets thicker, sometimes it gets gone. <laughs> So, Susan, why don't you give us a little thumbnail of your background because, uh, you know, people don't uh, become authors, you know, like right out of high school. So so bridge the gap for us from growing up and and how you ended up writing this book about destiny for women. Okay. Um, I was raised in a ranching family uh, in the city of San Antonio and uh, went off east to college. Uh, Vassar, and then worked in New York for about six years, had my life changed by watching a TV show, so I started uh, law school the following fall, and um, then ended up with handling child abuse cases as an assistant district attorney in Dallas, and then my father was aging, and so my husband, I'd married in law school, my husband and I moved back to San Antonio so I could help with the ranch, picking up the reins so that after he was gone, I could run it. And right. did, I, I basically still own the ranch, and um, my brother is lives on the East Coast. But then um was just sort of doing some things and helping advocate for uh, farmers and ranchers when we moved to Austin, because my husband and a couple of guys invented something pretty interesting. And so somebody said, why don't you run for the legislature? Well, to really compress that, I ran for the legislature, won and served, and then I ran statewide as the first woman ever to be agriculture commissioner. It's an elected Oh, my gosh. And then became comptroller, which is the tax collector, treasurer, and chief financial officer of the state, um, and would not have written a book had it not been for something that happened uh, about two years ago um, now uh, in Austin when for the first time ever, there was a majority of the city council were women, and it seemed to just cause a giant kerfuffle. And uh, male staffers thought, oh, my God, this is just unbelievable. We have to get special talent in here because they ask way too many questions. They don't like numbers. Well, that basically jolted me out of whatever bubble I'd been living in, and I thought, this is crazy to have this attitude about women. And so I wrote the book, and I also started a project, uh, which is informal name is herdacity a contraction of the words her and audacity and that's where we are today well fabulous i mean I, what i love about the book 
is that it is a call for women to direct their destiny. And, you know, I just was on the phone with an amazing woman uh, about an hour ago talking about women's organizations, right, and how many women, again, whether in corporate life or entrepreneurs, we don't spend enough time sewing into ourselves, right, first of all. And whether that's taking time to go uh, to get a massage, and I, I have to say I've got four gift certificates for massages sitting yep. on my desk. Yep. And, I mean, isn't that the yep. worst thing in the world that I haven't even made time for something as simple as that? But really things like thinking about your lifelong impact and your destiny and, and what kind of a legacy you're going to live. I mean, women don't take any time. For that, and you know, I, I'm not. To be fair, I'm not sure men do either. But, but tell us about that and how that came to be the subtitle of this book. Um, I began to think about what women do. A lot of times, we women follow cues we've already received, and it's somebody else's voice saying, "Well, why don't you go do this, Susan? Why don't you do that, Mary? Or, or why don't you do this, Chicky?" And so, mm-hmm. I. Our own destiny, our own worldview, our own passion, our own energy is sometimes directed by somebody else. And I thought, this is nuts. And um, when I saw that TV show, I thought, my gosh, I do not want to be on my deathbed thinking I've wasted my life. And so part of what we have to do to direct our own destinies, A, is know what it is. Right. And know what really makes us fuel with you know rocket fuel. But secondly... Be sure that we have the confidence that we can get that we may only take you know quarter uh, inch steps, but we can ultimately do whatever it is we want if we don't uh, take our eye off the ball. And so, right. what what I talk about in the book is the fact that you can be knocked on and off your path unless you're very focused on it and you decide it's right for you. And the third thing I would say is I think it's very important to have. Uh, other people support you and say, "At a girl, that's right," and but not you know may, may have the opportunity for constructive criticism, but also empower you. And that was why we started Herdacity. Right. Well, you start the book out with with a very provocative statement of, "I double dog dare you." So, so what are you daring us to do? I'm daring you to achieve your dream and not somebody else's. And uh, as a kid, you know, somebody said, I dare you. I, you know, right. You were hell-bent to go do it. And I thought, I double-dog dare each one of you to do your destiny, to achieve your dream. And I don't care whether it's to stay home and be a wonderful mom. Your kid's great. That is what you want to do. There is no bad career, no bad destiny for anybody as long as it's what you want. And I dare right. you, double-dog dare you, to achieve it. Well, and you know it's so funny because right now i'm I'm in the midst of of really shaping that narrative and and you talk about this in chapter two of of having our own unique narrative and and my narrative begins with this: I want to be a successful CEO in a well funded tampa based company that generates a hundred million dollars in revenues three years from now because we give 10% back to the charity of choice of our clients. And so I want to be giving $10 million a year to the charity of choice of my clients. That's, so, a, great, that's a great goal, and, it's, and it, you've got a very linear perspective on it. 
Yes. So, so talk to us about how you can develop that narrative. I mean, mine comes out of having failed in previous ventures and not being well-funded or being afraid that if I take in funding from somebody outside of Florida that they're going to want me to move someplace else, right, if you raise money in Austin, Texas or Seattle or, or Silicon Valley, you know, that, that tends to be one of the requirements, which is why my narrative includes living here in Tampa, Florida, which I adore. Um, so how do you tell people to develop their own unique um, narrative? Sort of know, know where you came from and what lessons do you glean from that. Being raised in a ranching family where you have to be very fiscally conservative, you have to be flexible because you get you know, sort of incoming missiles, whether it's drought or cattle prices plummeting, whatever. And so that informed me that I had to be uh, willing to accept adversity, willing to accept risk, and willing to be you know, sort of relentlessly optimistic. My father was very optimistic. You know, tomorrow we're one day closer to rain. We would have been, you know, eight, five years in a drought. You, that was my narrative, was that I was going to do something better, and I was going to stick to it, and I wasn't going to get knocked off. Right, right. I love that. Now, your your next chapter, again, I think is another one that is a bit provocative because we started out talking about the, the context of doing business in kind of the good old boys world. And, and you know, we all have a different flavor of that. Um, you know, of, of mine was sitting at a table uh, overlooking Central Park in, in a, a large investor's office in New York and uh, sitting at a conference table that I swear to God sat 120 people. And there was only one other woman and myself at the table. And halfway through the meeting, we leaned over and told each other that we were college dropouts. And we both just giggled because we thought it was so funny because all these men were dressed, you know, to the nines in their suits. And I don't remember what I was wearing that day. But uh, anyway, all this to say, your, your next chapter in the book talks about fitting in, but also standing out. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we sometimes think, oh, we've got to look like everybody else. And uh, I certainly stood out literally because when I was 15, I was 6 feet. When I was 22, I was 6 feet and a half. And you have oh my to God. decide to embrace you. And so if you fit in, are you sacrificing who you are because you want to look like everybody else, or can you just embrace who you are? And that means not just the externals, but the internals is whatever you want stick to it. You don't have to fit in. You may or may not stand out, but you've got to sort of have your mental uh, as well as physical clothing uh, fit who you are. And then you also talk about being brave. And, and you know, I just this last week finally had to get to the place where I admitted that I was a little bit scared because things were taking so long in my in my technology company. And you know, it takes time to raise money, even if I did want to raise money. And and I really, I don't normally have a problem with that. You know, I'm I'm normally kind of brave by default, but I found myself having to be brave. And and this is something again, women don't think in terms of bravery. Uh, so tell us about what you had to be brave about. Um. I basically went off to New York at the age of 22, and I really had to decide 
who was I going to be? So, of course, I flunked some interviews, which was great. I look back and I say, thank goodness I flunked interviews. I flunked one <laughs> at Pan Am, the best thing ever happened. I flunked a couple interviewing for law firms. Um, and you have to be brave in deciding what it is that you're going to do. And in that chapter, I also recount the story of an abusive, uh, violent husband. And I was constrained, I thought at first, by sort of societal norms. And I was, I was not going to survive, literally, unless I was brave enough to advocate for myself and to be my own best guardian. And I I've, I've talked about this just a week ago outside of uh, Austin, and I had a couple of women come up later and say that they too had been in violent relationships, and they had not had anybody they felt they could talk to. They were too embarrassed or too frightened or whatever. And I, what I'm saying is, be brave about protecting yourself. Be brave about saving yourself. Be brave about advocating for yourself, whether it's in a bad relationship or a bad job. Or but you have to be your best guardian, right? But you know what you just shared with us wasn't just about being brave, but being transparent about not always having all of the answers. And and I I get criticized from time to time by uh, by some of my close advisors that that I'm sometimes too transparent, uh, particularly on this show. But I do it for the very reason of what you said. Had you never said that on the podium that day, those women wouldn't have had someone to come up and talk to. And so I think about the things that I've had to be brave about, whether it be, you know, financial collapse in, in uh, you know, my last venture. But this leads right into the next chapter, which is about using what you've learned. And you talked about that in the context of failure or being in a situation, uh, you know, where you did have to stand up for yourself because somebody was uh, taking advantage of you. So how do you encourage uh, women in, in this particular case from this book to use what they have learned? You find out why did you get in that position in the first place. And the, uh, there were four or five of us, we talked about it. And it was the exact same thing. So you turn that around and say, okay, I made these mistakes. And so whether it is a failed business or a failed relationship, you deconstruct it and you write down all the things that you now knowing what you know you would never do again. And you lay that out as your path going forward. And I think it also helps you look at other people. I was able to use what I learned in helping uh, you know, abused children get their get help because I was able to see what the dynamics were. So whether it's business or whether it's personal, if you have a really blinding white light looking at what you did, you're going to be much smarter and you're going to be able to avoid making those same mistakes again. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you, most of my learning has come from, from the failure, but I love the perspective of, of figuring out why you got in that, that place because that's the only way to avoid it. So, so now you use your, your term about back to the ranch because obviously you, you actually physically came back uh, to your roots and, and you had a mission uh, you know, of taking care of things so that when your father no longer could, uh, you know, that, that the family didn't have to worry. What's the metaphor of back to the ranch in our lives, in, in being tenacious? To the basic tenets that you have, the basic understanding and worldview that you have, and those inform you whether you really focused on them or not. And then you can, they're a treasure chest of 
thoughts and emotions and senses and smells, and you can draw on those to give you strength. You can also draw on them to help direct your next steps. I love that. Um, Chapter 7 is an interesting one, and I I think uh, particularly for the women who are, uh, you know, in our age group, we've we've already been through this and and are perhaps, um, you know, giving uh, advice to the next generation of our family, but how you balance uh, motherhood and career. And, you know, I have an interesting story on this front because I didn't have my daughter until I was 40. And then we adopted my son from Russia when I was 46. And so here I am in, in my late 50s, and I've got, uh, you know, a sophomore in high school and a daughter who just started college. So I'm participating in this whole motherhood uh, thing, and, and particularly being the mother of, of uh, teenagers, uh, much later in life than most folks. And I'm at a stage in my career where I've already worked for myself for the last 20 years, so I've, I've had a lot of flexibility, but you know, had to do things a little bit different uh, than some of my peers. So how do we balance that tug of war? I think it is so personal, and I think it's so riddled with guilt. Uh, if I'm not working, I'm losing my my marbles and I'm losing my talent. If I am working, uh, then where am I with little Freddie? And I tried it all. I tried staying home and I tried working too many jobs and too much stuff. And I finally have concluded that for me, I had to have things be more uh, consecutive than concurrent. I could not do it all at the same time without there being a... Uh, problem in one place or the other. And it depends on whether you've got flexibility. The women I talk to, they generally um, don't have as much flexibility, and they would love workplace flexibility. That would solve a lot of problems for them. Uh, The men don't generally get dinged for taking off to be with little Freddie, and the woman does because, oh, my gosh, she's abandoned her career. I think it is so individual. I think it depends on your circumstances, your income, your child care, uh, your family support, and do you believe that you can get off that escalator, step off, and then get back on? And I'm I'm a firm believer you can always get back on an escalator, maybe a different one, but you can get back right. on. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and, and for me, by the time I had my daughter, I already worked for myself, so I, I was already crafting uh, my own story of how that worked. But but we had to go the nanny route of having somebody else raise my children. But now we have the amazing benefit of that. She, we had one, uh, the same person the whole time. She was with us for seven years, and then she ended up getting married. Uh, we had brought her from Peru and she ended up getting married here in the U.S. when she finished college. And uh, now she teaches at my son's school, and and her children, who we treat as our grandchildren, are also going to the same school. So we now have this extended family that we wouldn't have had had I not needed to work during those days. So, you know, I think having that long-term view also helps. I I tell new mothers always, your kids aren't going to remember these days when you're gone. They're just not. And and there are ways to bridge that. You know, I mean, we always said to when my kids were really little that mommy was going to be gone, you know, three sleeps because they could measure when they went to bed. They couldn't measure days. Days were too hard. You know, but being gone three sleeps, they they could count. Um, So... 
let, let's shift gears a little bit here because you talked about your career in politics, which, again, sounds like it wasn't actually by design. You hadn't you know, grown up saying, oh, no, you know, I want no. to get involved in politics. <laughs> Absolutely but the not. next chapter is politics ain't for sissies. No, politics is a combat sport. I mean, it was certainly enjoyable, um, and I uh, ran and won my first primary runoff recount mm. by two votes. Um, and saw a lot of stuff happen to people and to me that I did not like, but I was able to feel at the end of my you know, two terms as a House member here that I had done some things that I cared about. And that was sort of my, uh, my star on the horizon, and, but it's not for sissies. And if you have a very thin skin, you will find it gets punctured. And so I tried to not turn into a fathead. I asked my my uh, campaign consultant, I said, how many years will it take for me to turn into a fathead? And he said, probably about 10. And I've never forgotten that. That was in 1992. And I thought, you know what? Anybody can turn into a fathead. And so it's not for sissies. You have to say, I'm not going to turn into one of those. And you can define those any way you want. But politics is where a lot of things happen. Decisions are made about you, for you, and maybe sometimes against you. But you have to at least be aware of what's going on. A lot of women don't want to do it. They don't feel it's worth the time, and I think we need women in politics if they're willing to take the rough and tumble. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, then again, your your chapters so, so beautifully uh, flow together. So the next chapter talks about embracing what happens and actually making it work for you. So so even if things don't go the way that you would like or someone else is trying to shape that narrative, you know, you can still turn that around and make it work for you. Yeah, that I really cared about kids and I wanted to do something that I was legally entitled to do, which was take care of some kids in school and door one shut, door two shut. But I thought it was important enough, and so I sort of embraced what had happened. And I said, well, this isn't a failure. I'm going to go ahead and get it done. And so I was fairly cunning and uh, got the authority to manage the entire uh, breakfast and lunch program for the state of Texas in the summer of 2003 uh, against all odds. I'd lost everything in the legislature, and that taught me something important. You can always finally win. You may have to find another door, another building. Uh, if at first you don't succeed, literally try again, maybe in a whole different street, but you can get it done. Right, right. And the next chapter has a, a, a unique title of It's Their Money. So yep. what are we talking about here? This was about, uh, in my role as CFO, I thought it was important that the taxpayers knew where their money was, knew what they owed before they adopted you know, more bonds, et cetera. And it was all the way across, and I had, two, I had a bill prepared. It got killed twice on the House floor. And I kept saying, it's their money. It's their money. How dare we not tell them? Well, um, I got annoyed when it didn't pass, got killed, and so I ended up doing it myself. I used employees at the comptroller's office to put this information online that had been embedded in this bill. And I just heard yesterday that they're trying to kill all transparency again. And I'm thinking, guys, it is their money, and they are entitled to know, and I will uh, shame anybody who doesn't believe in government transparency. Tell them. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. 
So then, then you talk in Chapter 11 uh, about the lessons learned. And, I mean, we already talked about this a little bit of, of that you need to use what you learned. So, so what were your key, key takeaways in your own life uh, as you decided that you were going to direct your own destiny? A couple of major points. One is sort of be kind to yourself. Take time for yourself. Uh, find something you like about yourself, and you know. And then thirdly, try to ab- abandon free, abandon fear. I got afraid a number of times. We can, we can constrain ourselves way too much by being frightened. Figure out a way to abandon fear so that you can ultimately direct your destiny. Mm, I love that. And and then you talk about and and you you have used another word that you've concatenated here of make your own her story and you know of course you're you're uh, referring to making history, but but making it on your terms. Yeah, and I think I think we have to start talking about who we are and what we do. And I did a little research and I looked, but how much are women even? Uh, mentioned in books they're not they're not very well featured and so make yourself make yourself visible to your family make yourself visible to your granddaughter or your daughter make your own history uh, in your own words so that you are in essence a living embodiment of somebody a model that somebody else would want to emulate but and be outward looking be outward looking about what are you doing and who cares about it besides you? And your, your family cares, <laughs> and neighbors care, and friends care, and you're making history and history at the same time. Right, right. So at the conclusion of the book, you know, you encourage us to put on our boots. And uh, so I, I know that uh, having lived in Texas myself for for a decade. Uh, I, I know how important boots are to Texans. So, so as you wrap up this discussion of Texas tenacity and all the things that are necessary uh, to direct our own destiny, what's, what's the significance of putting on our boots? I love the song by Nancy Sinatra, These Boots Are Made For Walking. Ah, and that's right. what prompted this. And maybe walking all over you if you get in my way. <laughs> And that's really what it is. Don't let anybody put on your boots and be prepared to walk straight forward. Don't let anybody get in you when you got your boots on. Well, that is so funny that you that you uh, bring that song up because I can tell you I was uh, in grade school when that song came out, and we lived in a small town in Indiana, and out on the outskirts of town was this uh, retail store, and they sold boots and the kind of little white boots that Nancy wore, right? <laughs> and I, I was the youngest of three girls, and my parents didn't have a lot of money. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a pastor. But I cried and, you know, just dug my heels in until my mama would take me out and buy me those boots. And she did, right? She, she gave and in to me. didn't you feel empowered? I did. I, know, I did, and point. I put those boots on, and I was all of, you know, what, maybe 11 or 12 years old. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that that kind of showed who I was at right. that point in time. And I, I didn't even know it until much later in my life, um, you know, how I was going to just walk 
to where I needed to be no matter what, whether, you know, I, I dropped out of college but still ended up becoming a very, very successful consultant and, uh, you know, just really accomplished everything that I wanted to do. So, Susan, this has just been terrific, uh, you know, to have this walk through your book. Again, we've been talking about a book called Texas Tenacity by author Susan Combs. And, Susan, how can folks follow you? How can they where, – where do you want them to, to engage with you? Um, they can follow me. I'm on Twitter, um, hashtag Susan Combs, or Facebook, LinkedIn, and the book is available from Amazon. And I hope you'll also go look at www.herdacity.org. We're in the final phases of development, but it's going to be an online conversational platform free uh, for women to really sort of – sit around a verbal mental campfire and converse. Mm, I love it. I love it. Well, Susan, it has been terrific. Thank you so, so much for sharing uh, of yourself and and your own story as well as uh, about your book. And yes, I would absolutely encourage folks to go out and grab a copy of this book. And uh, again, hope you have a wonderful weekend, Susan, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Chicky, for the invitation. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald.